Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. I'm at Carl Kostel Gallery in Mayfair to meet with Mia Faithful and see her show, Obedience. Mia was born in London in 1991. She completed her BA at Central St. Martin's and following this enrolled at the Royal College of Art, graduating in 2021, which would have been in the middle of COVID. Art critic Valdemir Yanushik picked Mia for his 12 future stars of the art world, and she's on a need-to-know list. He described her work as showy self-portraits, as an android love object in a plush boudoir, seems to have been painted entirely with the essence of Instagram. That's a lot, a big intro, Mia. Hello. (laughs) We're in front of one of these pink boudoir paintings. Yes. How are you? I'm good. The opening was on Saturday and it's Tuesday, so I can't imagine you've had much downtime between now and then. None at all. We've been dealing with this sort of like photographs and like emails and Instagram, like having to deal with Instagram, which is not my forte and not something I enjoy at all. But um, no, it was like the the love. I mean, we opened with Ollie Epp and he has a huge following and it was like, it's always lovely to see people come in and when you live in a studio with work and no one ever sort of like sees the work or responds to it. And then you have all these people in one room at one time sort of being very excited for you. It's really nice. Can you go back to your early life and tell me uh, (laughs) who you are and what you do and how this all began? Well, I mean, I was born here and my parents are, my dad's an architect and my mom's a photographer. So we, I was just always going to be an artist when I think about it. Like it was just, so when people say, how did you get here? It was like, well, (laughs) no, that's a big uh, helping hand because so many people grow up with the idea that all artists are starving artists. And if your parents aren't artists or architects or work in creative fields, or you don't live in London, people don't see it as a viable living. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and also like there's, I remember in school we were learning about the sort of like the Freudian ID and being like the ego and you have to defy your like authority and your parents and all of these things to become an artist. And it was like, oh gosh, no, I had the opposite of that. My parents, like from, my dad would come home with these giant sheets of paper and my mom and I would just draw all afternoon. And my parents have in there, they have like a storage unit in their house. It's just all archives of all my old work. So I just have always, it's just always been, <laughs> it's actually, I am. Um, always showed like an aptitude for science at school and I would have loved to have been a cosmologist and my parents were like, no, <laughs> like, like, that, was a, that was a pipe dream. This was like the only thing my parents are ever gonna let me do. And I actually moved, I, was, I lived in Australia for a little bit and I lived in Italy and I worked for Dan Collin in, in New York for a little bit, but London was always where I was gonna go to school and always where I, I wanted to be. When I was researching you, there were so many interesting quotes like Simone de Beauvoir saying commodity of culture and young girls to dress and admire and the things that inform what you're doing from Simone de Beauvoir to Nicki Minaj and I like that whole borrowing from the whole thing of culture pop culture and academia now we're sitting in front of this piece this piece plush pink how would you describe the figure so uh, my assistant Charlotte who's actually here in the room shout out to Charlotte (laughs) she um, helped me we it effectively f- was using my image and then putting it through Blender and sort of adjusting the 
structure of the face, structure of the body to become that ideal that women are naturally doing via like Facetune and, and the like myriad of different apps that they use to enhance their body to achieve that ideal. Um, and then it was just making it almost like a cyborg. And this woman lives in this room that we created with like the pink, because I feel like I, when Charlotte came to work for me, I like showed her the thousands, thousands of images that I have of women in these like cookie cutter bedrooms. It's very like, you know, like in Edward Scissorhands where like they go through and all the houses are the same. All these girls' bedrooms are the same and they're all wearing the same bikini, the same set of lingerie. They're all posing in the same way. And so it was about creating that archetype archetypal space in sort of blender and then we could manipulate her to pose in whatever way we chose this position is actually based off of um, Billie Eilish's Vogue cover which received a lot of attention because it was it was that shift from who she was sort of like as the uh young 18 year old that just came onto the scene as she was and then how they pushed her to be this like ideal fem female if anyone hasn't seen that cover please google it and she's wearing these like plastic she's got like plastic skin and she's posing in this like madonna-esque just that feeling like that was an obedience to something of the way that people wanted to see her so that was sort of the um reference of, of her particular pose and then in the image in the painting rather she also has these toys around her um, because I found a lot of pictures of girls posing with teddy bears these 20 to 30 year old women in their bedrooms posing seductively with toys if one was in analysis this would have uh, red flags yes it's always going to be about the power differential and that's effectively what connects these two seemingly to sort of disparate aesthetics is um, both the cute aesthetic and the feminine aesthetic rely on that power differential. So it's reaffirming the sort of male power over something and that's what cuteness, that affect relies on. And it's the same thing with, with women. So it's about sort of like putting a hat on it almost by putting them in, posing them this way. And these toys that just, the, like the vacancy of their eyes and like the way that the mouth is almost diminished to nothing. And um, there was an article in the New Yorker by Gia Tolentino, who's like writes about this in it, like any of her essays relative to this, it's it's her interest as well. And she's talking about the manner in which Snapchat, the filters work and how they basically show you and they draw you in by making your face look that much more attractive. So it's like if your eyes were slightly bigger and your mouth was slightly smaller and your skin was slightly smoother and becoming addicted to that image of yourself, um, and it's basically based off of a baby schema, which is how toys are, were reconfigured sort of when they moved from being, you know, these beautiful wooden like train sets and like beautifully made dolls and carved horses. And then all of a sudden became these like big eyed, mouths sewn up, plastic things. And it's just based off that aesthetic and how we cognitively respond to that aesthetic, which is to feel more powerful than it. Um, and then you have, I think it's 90% of Americans between 60 and 20, 16 and 21 are on Snapchat and it's 70% of women. So it's just seeing how these, it's like a systematic issue and it's going all the way back to how girls are understanding their image as early as their teenhood. Which again is connects to what you said about the Simone de Beauvoir quote of like how women, that bio journey is so different for women than it is for men. 
The Snapchat girl selfies, that series is incredible. And was there something to do with Kylie Jenner? These ones? Yeah. Yeah. No, not to jump on from what you said, but these, you're, you're dealing with loaded topics. We're trying to figure out if there's a big danger in this and, and, oh, and yeah. how it's going to affect women in 10 to 20 years. And we don't know because these are new. Yeah. And we as the people who are like, I feel like a lot of my work doesn't necessarily resonate with huge audiences that are in the art world because their Instagram doesn't reflect that. So it's something that's being hidden from them because it's not the Instagram are effectively echo chambers. Like algorithmically, you're only going to see what what your age demographic is. So you're not really privy to what is being um, shown, encouraged, what young girls are consuming. Um, but it's the level effectively like to go all the way back to like John Berger and to go back to like um, Simone de Beauvoir, it's about to self-valorize as, as women naturally want to do evidently, it is to vacate yourself, to be able to look outside yourself and look at yourself as an object to make directions like okay that needs to change, okay that needs to change, that needs to change and Berger describes this gorgeously in ways of seeing which we all had to read in foundation yeah but, yeah, every, yeah like the most sort of <laughs> staple yeah, yeah but you go back to it and you're like god this is so true like men understand their power by what they can own and women understand their power by the desire to be owned and so that's why sometimes when you talk about women collectors, it's hard to find women collectors because they don't collect. Yeah. This just came up recently. No, I hope they do collect, but I've just contributed to what you're saying, but is that a balance? We, as a society, I don't think are comfortable with female desire in general because Jill Soloway had this amazing speech when she was talking about... Um, you know, it was like during the Time's Up stage and all these, like, why do we have no female directors? We're not comfortable as a society with female desire because women preface so much with, I hope this doesn't sound too aggressive or tell me if this is stupid. It's like, no, if you're a director, if you're at the helm of a project, you want people saying, that's wrong, that's right, I want this, I want that. And I just don't think we, we're not comfortable with that. So we just- Well, in we could get fired for doing that too. Yeah. Not only are we not, there's a reason we're not comfortable. Yeah. People don't like us doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, I, I personally think like it's my memory and I feel like this is echoed between every one of my girlfriends I've ever spoken to about it with. And, and it comes up a lot in sort of like literary texts as early back as, as, as the second sex. But women understand sexuality and desire by being the object of it before they have their own desires so you're a 12 year old girl and all of a sudden people start noticing you and that's weird to you so you sexuality and desire is about being the object of it rather than it coming from sort of an innate place so i think it sort of is a cognitive thing that starts right there um in fact i was listening to emily radikowski's my body um, and she's talking about a teacher coming and like snapping her bra strap and like telling her off at school and having no idea what was wrong. Like she was so confused as to why it was an issue. And so I think it starts there, but it's, it is understanding that you have to be a certain way. You have to direct yourself to be important, to have value, to have power. You have to vacate yourself, look outside yourself and make directions and, and adjustments. And these eyes, these, it's about this, I literally made these dolls. I have this like vanguard of like these Barbie dolls in my house um, where I've sewed the heads of the toys onto the Barbie dolls. And it's, 
the eyes like the hyper vacancy and is sort of pushing that theory and that disassociation from body and head well hannah black did it as well but it's about like the disassociation between like if you're talking really like um you want to be taken seriously you don't show your body and you just show your head and if you want to be sexualized you just show your body you don't show your head so that that dissection between sort of like femininity and feminism it's like that seems to be like the cutoff is the head um and so that was kind of the idea behind this also a lot of mike kelly references in for me i mean there was a piece hauser and worth did at la freeze where it was um unisex love nest and it's like this gorgeous childhood bedroom and then there's like porn playing in the middle of this like room and it's effectively like screen memory like and it's this idea that like a child would be playing with this toy a child would have found this tape and bondage the toy up because they even understand their power differential between like this toy that they can do anything to um and yeah just like these moments where like sexuality comes into your life kind of before you're ready I'm glad you mentioned Mike Kelly because the next question is about your influences your influences artistically uh, culturally first and foremost I didn't have Instagram for a really long time. I even struggle with it now. It really like ugh, makes me feel very sick. Um, so I think I saw objectively how it was affecting my female friends because I'm a millennial and I'm of that sort of like generation. So definitely just through my own experiences and my girlfriends and I saw how they were changing and how they were like feeling this need to keep up with the, this, the Instagram face as it sort of come colloquially to be known and like the way that men wanted to see it. boys they liked on instagram they would pose a certain way for and i could tell because i was seeing it objectively um artistic references i mean like amalia allman's performances um excellences and perfections that performance piece rich mclean that uh, toy like doll like mm-hmm. almost surreal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, that, you share a similarity with her in that yeah and i mean that was that was effectively like she does it through sort of like um parody by having all like the makeup and everything like that but it was almost like rather than through costume I'm putting it through technology my image through technology where she's putting her image through this like extreme costume and then uh Paul of Rego obviously I mean Curran, Coons yeah lots of lots and lots of different people even like like films like I was uh, um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain like the way that women are seen as like so seductive and yet so submissive and that sort of like like tenuous relationship as being like both powerful but also being weak and you're you're powerful in being weak um so things like that and then like I reference like um says like Edward, Edward says hands before and just like all everything being the same and that that's your idea of like these women becoming sort of like vessels for capitalist desire like what is at any one time the socio and economic standard for what beauty is what taste is and what like where the power is at any one time and they just are representative of that let's move to these ones <laughs> i want to i want to talk about lips and okay. and babies and sure. mouths because I could think of Beckett and the Screaming Mouth play. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You, you could think of having to separate someone's voice from their body if their image isn't up to being viewed. Mm-hmm. But what they have to say is interesting. Like, there's so much going on with these particular ones that f- intrigues me. And what we're looking at here is dolls' faces that have been blown up into a diptych. Yes. And uh, the mouth 
and the eyes are open. Yeah, they've had, um, so I've taken a doll, like a, like a, literally I just got from like a secondhand store, like lots of toys. Like <laughs> I'm always like sifting toys out of secondhand yeah. stores. Um, and I've put Snapchat filters over them. I've overlaid Snapchat filters to sort of um, make, like enlarge the eyes and make, it makes the mouth almost like orifice-like. Like it's very, um, yeah. To really like use these filters and to sort of like magnify them is really to like highlight, yeah, yeah the, and, and practices of subjugation that are happening consistently throughout Snapchat that we just are not privy to because I'm not using Snapchat, you're not using Snapchat, like, but it's... Um, it becomes an and enough people are. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's programming every child that is currently using it, which is evidently 90% of them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean with these ones specifically as well. Like uh, again, it's about like there's something about like the uncanny reversal there. I, like uh, I was heavily influenced by. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing her name wrong. Shan guys are new aesthetic categories, and cuteness as being like a whole chapter. And this just so it's. I mean, it's the most rich book in terms. Of, she goes back all the way back to like Karl Marx talking about like the commodity fetishism and sort of how we look at um again things that you can do things to and Karl, Karl Marx talks about like paternal benevolence towards something that turns into sadism like at, at, at the drop of a hat um and so you feel um you know empathy towards something and then you feel aversion because something not right is happening um and that's the same thing with Murakami's DOB which was also a reference so yeah, just having these eyes be so large, so widened. And uh, Walter Benjamin talks about that as well, about how like the larger the eye, the more sort of like powerless something becomes and the smaller the mouth becomes. So it's about like, yeah, as you said, like denying speech. Like it's like, which again, in that toy over there on the other painting that we were first talked about, it's actually stitched up. Um, and the, the, this idea that you were just like you are just submissive you have no autonomy you have no agency it's it's gone um and these toys just look like this this also was in part relative to the the decision about the title because um oh good yeah yeah it's I, such just, a good title oh thank you well i mean i had i was re i mean like just in the studio just when i say I read something that means audible because <laughs> you're always in the studio and you're just listening um but re i re-listened to the beauty myth by naomi wolf i re-listened to gia tolentino again i've referenced her twice twice now um always be optimizing that essay is like just captures it just captures our our, our millennial moment in such a specific beautiful and like eloquent way it's amazing and they all reference this word. It keeps coming up, obedience. And it was about, you know, in, for the beauty myth, in the 50s, like, what our mothers and our grandmothers were, like, obedient to was, like, domesticity, buying specific things in the household, buying a vacuum cleaner, like, buying, like, all of these things that were, were seen as, um, that's you being obedient to a specific, like, um, societal structure. And now it's the beauty, beauty standards. So by um, the moment that sort of women breached, <laughs> that like left the house, all of a sudden like beauty standards spiked enormously. Um, like eating disorders spiked, like cosmetic surgery went through the roof and that was a way of like keeping women under control. So it was again, it was about this like obedience to something. Um, and 
And just then again, like the cross-reference to cuteness, they all look obedient. And that is again, what is cute. It's something that just follows you around. It has no mind of its own. Um, and these, these, these paintings were about this like fear in obedience, but just like ultimately utter vacancy. I'm gonna quote where you said you paint your image parodying the hot babe trope, but it's more than the parody. Well, specifically, this was like a step forward in Charlotte, like was very helpful with like the technology of this, but it's, it's about like almost breaking it down to being, she almost looks like a golem of the beauty standards, like it's a Lord of the Rings reference point, but just having, there's nothing left, but having like the tiniest waist, the biggest breasts, the lips that are full and like this, this like vacant eyes, hair that's even quite infantile everything like they all of these pink. apps yeah pink. the pink yeah all the like lots and lots of lots of like pink plush pastels it's it's all about being like it's just like this weakness and this sort of femininity that just um just gets pushed and pushed um so that was using my image in through through those ways because as a feminist artist you're either going to reject the feminine to like totally and be like i'm completely against that or you become it to be like look how excuse my language yeah. ridiculous this is this is ridiculous like look at how much labor goes into yeah. looking like this this isn't real and it relies on kind of artists like amalia amalia Ullman and like mclean pushing those standards to basically like i guess reveal them and, and getting the words you were going to say, like getting messed up, yeah. getting absolutely where you don't even know what's going on anymore because it's happening in real time. Absolutely. And we're trying to figure out who does have agency over women yeah. and do we have any of our own and how will we get paid equally and be listened to equally. And uh, I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about women being sexualized and at the age of 12, they notice they get looked at. When women get older, they'll either go two ways. They'll say, nobody looks at me anymore, mm -hmm. or they start expressing their desire. Both aren't welcome. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, when people sort of like ask me about this and bless everyone on the opening for coming up and asking me, being like, so what's the answer? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, because effectively, like to me, art is never going to be It'll always be a critique, obviously, like you're always sort of like um, digesting the world around you and sort of responding to it, but it's only evidence of the contemplation. I'm only contemplating this moment. Like that's all, art. to me, that's all it is. That's why it's successful, because you're asking us to debate it ourselves. You're not giving people answers. You're like, wake up, this needs to be talked about. Absolutely, and, and also just like, I mean, my partner's an actor and I spend a lot of time with him in Los Angeles. And it's not as prevalent here in the UK, but there's so many articles coming out of like, yeah, like the New Yorker and I've just constantly about like the new Instagram face and the class politics around it as well. Because the digital, like this, this really sort of, um, what you can do to Facetune, these women go into plastic surgeons and go, do this for me. And so these women have these faces and you basically look at someone and go, oh, you're rich because you can afford to basically look like the ideal. Because we realize no one looks like that. <laughs> That's not naturally how we're born. So there's a lot in, in how I guess like we're gonna split off in the world as to like these people who can afford to look a very 
digital way and then people that can't, which is again why that painting was, was of interest to me and, and achieving it in the way that I did, yeah. Should we go over to the last Absolutely, diptych? Yeah. More gorgeous babies until <laughs> you kind of go, oh. Well, this one, so obviously Snapchat had like, uh, I think Instagram started realizing that the reason people were engaging with Snapchat was because of these filters, like because people enjoyed seeing their faces looking a specific way. So I've basically used one of Instagram's filters on this one to adjust the dolls. Um, but did you photograph the dolls first? So I yeah I used I used the filters to photograph them and then that then painted them. Your yeah. studio must be so interesting. I mean, there's lots of toys. It's very weird. Charlotte's like yeah. That's the Paul Rager thing. <laughs> the studio must be amazing. <laughs> so, Do but, you pull out dolls? on a daily basis and well, photograph so them. When, when I was at school, we went into COVID and I just like had no idea what to do with myself. Hence sort of pulling apart all the toys that I'd bought and then swapping the heads over with the Barbie dolls. And I made like a hundred of them. Um, and then the bondage tape started taping them up again. Cause it's just, you know, idle hands. Like you just, you, yeah, I, I had to do something. good for studio practice. Or not, yeah, it exactly. one way or the other. It wasn't good in terms of painting because I didn't, our school just shut down, I didn't have any of my paints, but I had these dolls. So that's kind of how we got to that point. But I mean, with these ones specifically, and I mean with the whole, the whole, the whole show is um, oil on linen. And like, I really, I had this, I've had this conversation with so many painters that are, this is only interesting to people who are painters, but so many painters who um, work in oil and like the process is just long. It's long and laborious, it's boring. It's boring. Even John Curran was like, I'm gonna start putting acrylic underpaintings down because I just need to move this process along. Now I understand why the change in your dates were so significant because yeah. you have drying time to consider. Absolutely, when people are like pick up on this day, I'm like, oh, can I have another day just for it to dry? Um, but. Effectively, like I, I, you, I feel like you need oil paint because it does capture the like plasticity of things, the luminosity of like digital skin, the luminosity of like plasticity. Like you can't, you cannot achieve that with acrylic. And, it, and it's alive. Yeah, and it, it needs to feel like it is a skin. It needs to have that feeling. And also, like to me, it's important to the um, trompeloy. Like that's important as well because. The idea of like the painting, whilst it is an object, it, you can't penetrate it, you can't hold it. And that points to kind of like an impotence with like these female images as well. Like they're not real, not, these images are not real. It's something you want to F-U-C-K, but you can't F-U-C-K. It's like, so there's something in, in that as well for me. And that's why kind of painting this way is, was important. You already answered what art was for without me even asking it uh, to stir up a debate about issues of our time and to you know, make us notice what we're living with and what it might conjure up in the next decade or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I didn't ask you is if you could live with one piece of work, what would it be and why? And money's not the deciding factor. My parents have... Um a little Matisse in their house and like my my sister knows I probably shouldn't say that to all burglars out there no they don't <laughs> they don't have the rats yeah they don't, they don't, that's true um, but 
I don't think with any other art form, if you watch a film, if you read a book, you're not living with the reality of that thing. You don't stand in front of the actual brushstrokes the artist made. It's like, it's living still. It, yeah, and There's an energy that's been left in the painting exactly. and it's, it's affecting the environment. Exactly, and this one piece in our house made me realize that because it was like, oh my God, he stood in front of this thing. It's still living. When you stand in front of a Vincent van Gogh or, or Matisse, yeah. you feel the energy and you feel it from your work as well. Yeah. Is there uh, anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to discuss? Um, yeah, I mean, we can talk about like how I came to Nicole, yeah. Um, well, I really, like a really good friend of mine, Emma Webster, she's a, an artist with, um, I mean, she's with tons of different galleries at the moment, but um, I met her when I was like, I first came back to London and I was like 17 years old and we just always stayed in touch. And then um, when I graduated, she put me in touch with Carl um, and he's amazing and wonderful. And I'm, I feel so grateful to be, to be here. And, and I, I did the Peggy Guggenheim internship when I was like a baby woman and um, <laughs> they, they did, um, a, when you talk about everything we had to learn about how Peggy operated or the artists that she worked with and like really championing them, like really, really, really wanting to connect people. And like um, this story of, of her with um, Pollock and Robert Motherwell and they, her saying, Brock and Picasso were doing a collage show, do some collages, I'll put you in the show. And like, they hadn't like found their sort of artistic vocabulary yet. But they were like, okay, sure, we'll do collages to be in a show with Picasso. And she just was just like pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. And if there's anyone that is working with artists like that now and not sort of like, not sort of like working with artists for whom there is already success, it's like working with artists because he believes in them and he wants them to succeed. And that's Carl. And like legitimately, I'm so happy to be working with this gallery. So I would agree. There's a community around yeah. this gallery that seems to be strong socially, aesthetically, work-wise, and it does seem to be like a throwback to a time when artists had a school of thought that they shared with each other, and it seems to be led by the gallery, so I think you're also very lucky. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, thanks to Carl. I love you. Mia Faithful's Obedience is at Carl Kostel Gallery until the 27th of May. I urge you to come and see yes. it. And where can they reach you on Instagram? Uh, Mia Faithful Art. Thank you. Thank you. have been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>